All right, I'm so proud of you, community of faith. You know, we did those 250,000 meals for Ukraine, but did you know that you're feeding 55,000 children a day in Burundi every day? I love that about you. I love the generosity that you show for those around the globe, and it just makes a, makes a huge impact. So how are we doing today? Yeah, if you're online, we're glad that you're with us. Last night, I had a, one of those really disturbing dreams. I, I, I dreamed that I died and I went to heaven. And when I got to heaven, I felt this pressure on my arm and I looked down and it was, it was the ugliest creature I had ever seen, just holding onto my arm, smiling at me with no teeth. And I was like, what? I'm used to having beautiful Lara on my arm. And it was like, I said, St. Peter, what is the deal? And he said, Mark, not only is this a really ugly creature, but this is gonna be your mate for all of eternity. Disturbing, right? And I, and I said, what? Why? Because of the kind of life you lived on earth. And then I, I looked across heaven and I saw Pastor Wes Jackson. He had Ariana Grande on his arm. <laughs> and he's all cocky, you know. He goes, it's me, Wesley and Ari. If you test me, you sorry, you know? And I'm like, that's not even an appropriate song, St. Peter. And what's the deal with that? And St. Peter just looked so sad and he said, yes, Mark, she lived the same kind of life you did. <laughs> just a dream. You've been uh, sending in your questions and we are trying to answer them and you send hard questions. The one I got for today is, why do bad things happen to good people? Last week, Wes talked about suffering and why they're suffering. And this is kind of similar, but uh, um, it's still, it looks at it from a little different angle. Now, Jesus gives a really short answer, basically, if you read in the Bible and as you go through it, he says, there are no good people. Amen. Shortest sermon ever. Thank you guys for being here, right? Uh, G.K. Chesterton, I think, got it right. He was the great Catholic theologian. And when a newspaper posed the question, what's wrong with the world? The Catholic thinker, G.K. Chesterton, repeatedly wrote a brief letter in response. He said, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. And that's the attitude of someone who has really grasped the message of Jesus. We're gonna look at this message of Jesus in a parable that You've probably heard, even if you haven't come to church much, you've probably heard about it. It's called, in our, we call it like the prodigal son. But if you think you understand it, I'm gonna tell you that you probably might have missed it because it's probably one of the most misunderstood of Jesus' parables. In fact, it's deep, it's profound. And it really answers this question, why do bad things happen to good people? In this parable, Jesus defines our world. He defines the Christian faith in just a few short sentences. And maybe you've read it many times, but never seen the true meaning of it. It's not a parable of comfort because we think of it as a parable of grace and comfort, but the hearers for whom it was intended when Jesus finished this parable, they didn't leave comforted. They left furious, infuriated, angry, murder in their faces toward Jesus. So Jesus' purpose in this parable isn't to to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. In this parable, Jesus challenges what everyone in his day basically thought about sin, about salvation, about God. Today, 
Christianity is called one of the world's great religions, but you know, when Christianity first arose, it was called a non-religion. Did you know that? In fact, the Romans called Christians atheists. Did you know that they called Christians atheists? Where's your temple? Well, we don't have a temple. Where are your priests? We don't have priests. Where are the sacrifices to please your gods? We don't make sacrifices. You're atheists. You're non-religious. This Christianity that Jesus birthed is not a religion. In fact, it's something else entirely. It, it simply doesn't fit the category of a religion. And in Jesus' teaching, the non-religious were attracted to him like crazy. You just keep seeing it. We'll see it in this passage. But the religious people of his day, they hated him. So let's look at it. It's in Luke 15. And if you want to grab your phone, pull it out, you can look it up. You can see our, our, our verses for today. They'll also be up here on the screen. Or you can turn in your Bible to Luke 15. We'll start with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. He had tax collectors, prostitutes, all these. They gathered around and they just kept coming and coming and coming. But the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, and the teachers of the law, the Jewish law, the Torah, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So two groups had gathered to hear Jesus, the bad people and the good people. And you got to understand that everyone looked at the Pharisees. We hear the word Pharisee and we think self-righteous, not a good person. But the Pharisees were the best people around. They were the most moral people around. We'll continue in verse 11. Jesus continued and he speaks a parable. There was a man who had two sons. <clears throat> the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. Now, this is shocking to the listeners because when a father died, the older son, if there was two sons, the older son would get two thirds of the estate. The younger son would probably get a third of the estate. But this was a huge disrespect because the father was still alive. Dad, since you just won't die, I'm tired of waiting. I don't want you, Father. I want your stuff. I'm sick of waiting for you to die. They thought, oh, well, he's going to be disinherited in a moment, right? And they listened to what Jesus said the Father did. So he divided the property. He divided the estate between them. What? Why would he do that? In this day, the wealth was always property. So at great expense to himself, the, the father had to put some of his property up for sale and, and, and sell off part of the property to, to give to this younger son. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him in his field to feed pigs, which not a good thing for a Jewish boy. You know, they don't do pork, right? He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. He was so hungry, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hard servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, 
Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. The, The rabbis of that day said when a kid would do something like this, he was considered dead to the family. And the best that he could ever do after that was just to be a hired servant and seek to pay back to the father all that was wasted on him. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, patriarchs in this day didn't run. They were dignified. They were were in charge. And there was great deference given to elders in in that day. Only little children ran, servants ran. But this says that this dignified patriarch ran to his son. And he threw his arms around him. He kissed him. Verse 21, the son said to him, he started his little spiel that he had memorized. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he couldn't even finish his rehearsed speech when the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, which would be his own robe, a father's robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. That you didn't have much meat to eat back in this day. It's like in Burundi when we go there, they usually just eat uh, rice and beans and a little bit of this bread thing that they make. But when we went there, they asked me to kill the cow and they gave me like this butter knife, you know? And I was freaking out. So I starts walking toward the cow and thinking, God help me. I don't even know. I don't, this is gonna be terrible. I don't even know how this is gonna work, you know? Poor cow and the poor meat, you know? And, and then I heard the, the cow making noises. It didn't sound very good. And I got there and they'd already killed the cow because Claude, our man on the ground said, I don't think this is a big honor for him like you think, you know? But they killed the cow and they gave us meat. I mean, we ate steak that night. They hadn't eaten steak. They had never killed a cow for anything before. It was a big deal. Kill the fatted calf. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. He was given the status, not of a hired servant, but as a son. See, there's nothing the father won't forgive if we just come to him. The son knew that there was food to spare in his father's house, but he didn't know that there was gonna be mercy to spare, grace to spare. He didn't deserve it. He couldn't earn it. It was freely given. Now, remember, there's two kinds of people listening. Bad people, the tax collectors and sinners, they're called the prostitutes, and the good people, the religious, moral, upstanding citizens. This first son represents the bad people far away from God. He went to a far country. He squandered his life, but he came home to the father. Now, most sermons finish the story there, but it's not over. Verse 25, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and said, hey, what's going on? Your brother has come home, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother rejoiced. No, that's not what it said. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property 
with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The parable, many of us know it. When the elder brother hears from the servants that his younger sibling has returned, he's furious and it's his turn to disgrace the father. He refuses to go into the great feast, publicly casting a vote of no confidence in the father's decisions. And this forces the father to do something humiliating again, just like he ran to the first son. He leaves the great feast where everybody's in there. He's the host. And he has to come out to speak to the elder son because he won't come in. It's a demeaning thing to do when you're the Lord of the manor and the host of the feast. He pleads with his son to come in, but he continues to refuse. He, he's especially concerned with the cost of all that's happening. Remember, the, the, the father says, all I have is yours. So he's spending part of what is his on his younger brother. He says, I've never disobeyed you. And the father doesn't deny that. Basically, he's saying, I've never disobeyed you, father. So I have rights. I deserve to be consulted about this. You have no right to make this decision unilaterally. Basically, in the Greek, he's saying, look, you, like punching his dad in the chest. Very disrespectful. Look again at how the father responds. He doesn't disinherit this son either. He says, son, swallow your pride. I love your brother and I love you. Come into the feast. Now, the crowd around Jesus at this point, they're on the edge of their seats. What is the older brother going to do? The father has responded again in this manner that they can't even believe what's happening. Well, the, the story abruptly ends. It's over. That's the end of it. What, what is Jesus doing? He's redefining everything we thought we knew about God. Everything we thought we knew about sin He's redefining sin. Everything about what it means to be lost and what it means to be saved. Jesus' parable, it comes to an unthinkable conclusion for the people of his day. As Jesus leaves the elder, good brother, the good son, in an alienated state. But the bad son enters the father's feast. The good son will not. The lover of prostitutes is saved the moral man is lost. It was the complete reversal of everything they had ever been taught. But it gets even more shocking. The elder brother is lost, not in spite of his goodness, but because of it. I have never disobeyed you. You see, it's not his sins that are creating a barrier between him and his father, but rather his pride in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing that, that's getting him, it's his right doing that is preventing him from enjoying the Father's feast. What in the world is Jesus saying? Apart from God, no one is good. No one. Because God looks at hearts. God looks at motives. And God knows the truth. 
that the brothers' hearts, the two ways of life that they represent are much more alike than they at first appear. Why, what did the younger brother want most in life? He chafed being under the father's supervision. He wanted to take the father's assets and blessings, but to make his own decisions and live life on his terms. What did the older son want? We come to realize he was just as resentful of the father's supervision as his younger brother. He too wanted the father's goods for himself rather than the father himself. However, while, while the younger brother went far away, the elder brother stayed close and never disobeyed. That was his way to get control. I've always obeyed. Now you must do things in my life the way I want to have them done. You owe me that. All these years I've been slaving for you. Wow, that's a good indicator. He didn't say, I've loved you and I've been, he said, I've been slaving for you. The hearts of the two brothers are the same. Both sons resented their father's authority. Both sons sought ways of getting out from under it. They both sought ways to control their father. They both rebelled, one by being very bad and one by being very, very good. But both were alienated from the heart of the father. Both were lost sons. You see what Jesus is teaching here. Neither son loved the father for the father himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. Jesus is saying you can be alienated from God by breaking his rules, or you can be alienated from God by keeping them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law as a way of rebelling against trusting in him. See, Jesus is redefining for us lostness. What does it mean to be spiritually lost? In the parable, the younger brother's lostness is clearly seen. He ends up in the pigsty. He's run out of friends, money, resources, all because of his self-indulgent lifestyle. He has cared nothing about the father. And it's led to a complete life collapse. And at that point, the younger brother realizes that he's lost his way and he returns to the father and he returns to try to rebuild his life. However, in the parable, Jesus wants us to discern another more subtle, but no less devastating form of lostness. Once we have Jesus' deeper definition of sin, we won't miss it. We can see it. We should be able to recognize it. And it's crucial that we do. We'll call it elder brother lostness. It, it, it brings as much misery and strife into this old world of ours as the other kind. And a closer look at the elder brother helps us discern its features. You see that the elder brother became angry. He's just full of resentment. The older son is lost. He's outside the feast of the father's love. Yet when you look at his list of wrongdoings, he's got almost nothing on the list. I've always obeyed you. I've never disobeyed you. The father doesn't contradict that. It's Jesus' way of showing us that he's virtually faultless regarding 
the moral rules of life. So what's the problem? Pride in his good deeds rather than remorse over his bad deeds was keeping the older son from the feast of salvation. The the elder brother's problem is his self-righteousness. The way he uses the moral record to put God and others in his debt to try to control them and get them to do what he wants. How do you know if you're an elder brother, if you have an elder brother spirit, when your life doesn't go as you want, you're not just sorrowful, but you're angry at God. You're bitter. Elder brothers, you see, believe if they live a good life, they should get a good life. That God owes them a smooth road. If they try very hard to live up to his standards, what happens then if, if you're an elder brother and things go wrong in your life? If you feel you've been living up to God's standards, you're going to be furious with God. You don't deserve this. After how hard I've worked to be a decent human being, all the things I've done, right? God, have you seen my life? I don't deserve this. The good life is lived not for the delight in the good deeds themselves or just enjoying the Father's presence, but as a calculated way to control the environment around him. Elizabeth Elliot recounts an apocryphal story. It's not in the Bible, but it's about Jesus that conveys the difference between a a results-oriented righteousness and and selfishness and a faithfulness born of love. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, I want you to find a stone, I want you to pick it up, and I want you to carry it for me. Well, Peter, being, you know, a smart guy, Jesus didn't say how big the stone had to be. He didn't say anything about the weight of it. So he finds the smallest pebble he can find, and he pops it in his pocket. Some of the others had bigger rocks, but he thought, I'm being smart. They're going to be tired. So they walk, and Jesus is teaching, and they, it comes to lunchtime, and Jesus waves his hand over the stones, and they all become bread. And Peter's got this tiny little thing, the best bread he's ever had, but, you know, it's so little. It's just gone in a moment. He's still pretty hungry. And then Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, I want you to pick up a stone, and I want you to carry it for me. So Peter, he's, ha, 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 So he looks around and finds this kind of like a boulder, basically. And he picks it up and he can hardly carry it. He puts it on his back and he's struggling as they walk through the afternoon and Jesus is teaching them. He starts to fall behind, but he's thinking supper's gonna be great. And then they come at supper time to a river and Jesus says, throw all the stones in the river. And they do. And then Jesus begins to walk away. And Peter's puzzled for a moment, and then he gets furious. And then Jesus sighs and looks at him and says, Peter, did you forget what I asked you to do? I said, carry the stone for me. See, a lot of us, we're doing a lot of good things, but it's, it's not about God. Like Peter, elder brothers, expect their goodness to pay off. And if it doesn't, there's confusion. 
and there's rage. If you think goodness and decency is the way to merit a good life from God, you'll be eaten up with anger because life never goes that way. In fact, the Bible told us we're going to have tribulations. James told us we're going to have trials. Jesus told us we're going to have persecution. But I want you to see something about this story. As Jesus is redefining what it is to be lost, he's also redefining what it is to be saved. Notice God's initiating love. It's God who makes the first step. Notice how the father comes out to each son and expresses love to him in order to bring him in. He doesn't wait for the younger son on the porch, impatiently tapping his foot. Oh, there's that kid of mine, you know. Here comes that son of mine. After all he's done, he better do some real groveling. I'm gonna take him back. He doesn't do that, does he? There's not a hint of such an attitude. No, he runs to him in an undignified way. He falls on him. He kisses him. He holds him. And before his son can even confess, it's not the repentance that causes the father's love. The father's love is already there. In fact, it's the reverse The son figured out that the father loved him, so he came home. And it makes the son's expression of remorse that much easier. But look, the father also goes out to the angry, resentful elder brother, begging him to come into the feast. And it's a picture that has kind of a double-edged sword. It shows that even the most religious and moral people, we still need the initiating grace of God. And we're just as lost. And it shows there is hope. Yes, hope even for the Pharisees. See, this last plea from the Father, it's particularly amazing when we think about Jesus' audience. He's addressing the religious leaders, the ones who are going to crucify him, the ones who are planning all this devious stuff to get him. He's addressing them, not in a harsh way, condemning way, but with a loving plea to turn from anger and self-righteousness. Jesus is pleading with love to his deadliest enemies. See, Jesus isn't a Pharisee about Pharisees. Sometimes we think, you get the picture, Jesus didn't like those Pharisees. Oh, he loved the Pharisees, just like he loved the sinners just like he loved the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He loved those Pharisees with all that he was. He's not self-righteous about self-righteousness, nor should we be. He not only loves the wild living, free-wheeling, free-spirited people, but also the hardened, self-righteous, religious people. See, the truth is none of us could ever find God unless he first sought us if he didn't run to us. But we need to remember he can do that in a lot of different ways. Sometimes God jumps on us dramatically like he did with the the, the younger son. And we have this sharp sense of his love, especially when we've been in the far country and we're so far from God and we know it. Sometimes he patiently argues with us, even though we continue to turn away as in the case of the older son, how can you tell if he's working on you now? Do you feel a sense of your lostness? 
See, the only way that you can come to him is you have to feel a sense of your lostness. And the only one that can give you that sense of your lostness, especially if you're moral, if you're good, is if the Father initiates that. If you feel that this morning, that means that the Father is right here in front of you, calling you to himself. That's who God is. That's, that, that's what God does. Because we could generate that desire on our own. Although the sons are both wrong and both loved, the story doesn't end on the same note for both of them. Why does Jesus construct the story so that one of them is saved and restored to a right relationship and one of them is not? Maybe Jesus is trying to say that while both forms of self-salvation are equally wrong, they're not equally dangerous. One of the ironies of the the parable is now revealed. The younger son's flight from the father was crashingly obvious. He left the father literally, physically, and morally. The older son stayed at home. He was actually more distant and alienated from his father than his brother because he was blind to his true condition. He would have been horribly offended by the suggestion that he was lost or that he was rebelling against the the, the father's authority and love, but he was deeply How dare you say that? That's what a Pharisee would say. Is how religious people today still respond. If you suggest their relationship with God isn't right, I'm there every time the church doors are opened. Jesus says, in effect, that doesn't matter. No one had ever taught anything like this before. I remember a woman came to me and she said, Pastor, My husband is an atheist. He is just a a terrible man. He is not faithful to me. And he said the other day to me that after hearing your Easter message, that he would be open to talking to you. This was a few years back. And I remember I said, well, let's set up a time. And and, and I think she was pretty excited about me talking to him because she was going to show me how bad her life was with him, you know? And, and she got so much sympathy from her friends here at church. And, and, and just, I mean, they would always say, how do you put up with him? You're, a, you're such a, 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 an amazing person. You're such an amazing wife to put up with a scoundrel like that. And he came in my office. And at first he was very rude. But as I just continued to smile and talk to him and share with him from my heart and try to be really real with him, he was like, you're not like any other pastor I ever met before. And I said, you've met many pastors? He goes, no. (laughs) And as you know, about the third time he came to my office because he started to get really intrigued. He he said, I had a terrible childhood. I, I, I didn't have anybody that loved me. And you're talking about this father that loves me. And I just feel, and then tears welled up in his eyes. And like a little child, He prayed right there in my office. Father, I want to come to you, Jesus. I want you to be Lord of my life. And everything changed in a moment. And and I called the lady and I was so excited and she seemed ambivalent on the phone. She seemed confused. And then as the weeks passed, she got 
angry. You know what she said to me? She said, Pastor, I can't even come to the church anymore. He's taken over my church. All of my friends are becoming his friends. I, I, I don't even feel at home there anymore. And I'm like, what? She stopped coming to church. It's ugly. What's going on? She was getting kudos for her morality, for her goodness. And when that flipped, it showed her true heart. She wasn't a believer. He was now, but she wasn't. What must we do then to be saved, to find God? We must repent of the things that we've done wrong, but if that's all you do, you might find yourself to be an elder brother. See, Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians, believers, get to the very root. We must learn how to repent of the sin that's under all our sins and the sin that's under all of our righteousness, the sin of seeking to be our own savior, our own Lord, the sin of trying to control our environment, to be God. It's the same sin as the very first sin. Remember Adam and Eve, what did the serpent say to them? When you eat that fruit, you will be as God. That's why they ate it. Here then is Jesus' radical redefinition of what's wrong with us. See, almost everybody says sin is a list of things that, that we break, these moral rules of God. But sin's not just breaking rules. It's trying to control. It's putting yourself in the place of God as Lord and Savior and Judge as each son sought to displace the authority of the father in his own life. So why are the questions, why do bad things happen to good people and why do good things happen to bad people? Precisely the wrong questions is because as we have discovered in this story, there are no good people. We shouldn't expect good things to happen. We're bad people. And in fact, we have never been anything but bad people who happen to occasionally do good things, but usually for the wrong reasons. And if we're bad, we should no longer expect good things to happen to us. So the question of why bad things happen is already answered. Instead, Jesus flips it all on his head and said, that's not the question. The question is, you realize how much the Father loves you. We must realize the cost of salvation because it's only at great cost that, that the father makes us his own. Everything I have is yours. Mercy and forgiveness is free to the one who receives it, but it's costly to the one who gives it. That's why some of you are holding that grudge. I can't let that go. See, we, we, we call this the parable of the prodigal son. Webster's di Dictionary defines prodigal as to spend recklessly. I always thought it was, you know, someone that was far away from somebody. That's not what it means. It means to spend recklessly. This parable should be called the parable of the prodigal God because God spends recklessly to bring us to himself. 
The gospel is not religion or irreligion. And it's not halfway along the spectrum between two poles. It's something else altogether. In the gospel's view, everyone is wrong, but everyone is loved. And everyone is called to recognize this and come to Jesus for life change. It's not the moral or in and the immoral or out. Jesus says, no, no, no. The humble are in and the proud are out. That's why the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, they knew they were sinners. God be merciful to me, a sinner, said one of the tax collectors. And the Pharisee said, thank you, God, that I'm not like that man. Listen to these verses from Romans chapter 8. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, We're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. But no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's good, isn't it? See, the Bible never claimed that life was going to be fair or easy. If we believe these verses, then the questions, why do bad things happen to good people and why do good things happen to bad people, aren't questions which should necessarily lead to our doubting God. Rather, they become opportunities to trust the heart of our Father. The one who said, In the last day, I'm going to stand up and rewrite the story. And I will make all things new. I'm going to rewrite it. Come to the feast. Come to the feast. Taste and see that God is good. Whatever your circumstances, whatever is going on, Jonathan Edwards, the the great early preacher. He was known as America's preacher in the early days during the the revolution and, and all of that. He says, the difference between believing God is good and tasting that God is good is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and 
having actually tasted it and knowing that it's sweet. I want you just to close your eyes with me for a minute. You have a sense of your lostness today? That's God. If you're here and you don't feel anything, God hasn't started moving yet. But he will because we've prayed for you. And he said, it's my will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that everyone would sense their lostness and come to Jesus. Not a religion, it's a relationship. You sense it, you can step into it right now. You can say, Jesus, I'm tired of being my own God. I'm tired of trying to control my life. I've been so good and I thought I'd helped my fellow man. I thought I'd done all these things. I thought my good outweighed my bad. My life is a wreck right now and I'm so angry at you and now I see it, I see it, I see it. You told me it was gonna be hard. You told me in the Bible that I was gonna have tribulation and persecution, maybe even be slaughtered for you. But I thought you owed me. Now I see you owe me nothing, but you love me so much, so much that you died on that cross for me and I receive you. Be my Lord, be the God of my life instead of me. Maybe you've been in the far country, you're coming back. Could God ever receive me? There's nothing you've done. Murderers, prostitutes, cheaters, liars. He receives us all. He loves us. Maybe you're here and just been a really, really good person, but you've got a lot of resentment right now toward God. Oh, if you could see his heart, he loves you, little girl. He loves you, little boy. And he's pleading with you. If you feel that right now, he's pleading with you. Come into my feast of salvation. Taste and see that I am good. And in the midst of the hardest times of your life, you'll trust me. You'll know I'm still good. I'm still good. I'm still God. One day, I'll rewrite the story. Until that day, little child of mine, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust my heart for you is good? Jesus, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, you're moving in this place. Some of us have felt our lostness for the very first time. We thought we were pretty good people when we compare ourselves to other people. We look pretty Dang good, but we've been trying to be our own God. We've been trying to control our circumstances. We've been trying to control you. We want to be as you. We want to be the one that controls everything and even controls you, that you have, you owe us. Oh, that's so sinful, so wrong. Please forgive us, save us. We want to taste and see that you are good. 
in your precious son's name and by the blood uh, on the cross that he shed as he rose again for us. Amen.